and welcome everybody to the Bleeding Big Blue Podcast. Alex Ivers put us back again. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, like and comment on our videos. One was released a couple of days ago. Our podcasts are available on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, Apple, and Google Play. Today we had Vincent Rapasardi of Big Blue Unbiased. You can check him out on Apple. He does host a podcast and he also hosts a YouTube channel. He's very big into analytics. Next two days are going to be big into analytics in Wednesday is going to be more film. Ron Sagani is coming on Wednesday. He's going to show me some of his expertise when it comes to film and analytics and breaking down the Giants. Friday, we're going to have on Dan Duggan of The Athletic. And then we'll see what schedule goes for next week. Thank you guys for supporting. Also, follow our social media pages at Bleeding Big Blue Podcast, where we always give updates, uh, either on the story of Instagram, posting on Instagram, or tweeting. Tweeting is the most active but all those pages are awesome, and you should go follow them. But right now, we're going to give you the interview from earlier with Vincent Rapisardi of Big Blue Unbiased. All right, so we are now joined by Vincent Rapisardi of Big Blue Unbiased. Vincent, how's everything going? Good, Alex. How are you? Good. All right, first question. Uh, dealing with a little bit with analytics will probably guide us through the first, I would say, three, four questions. You worked in player development with the Tigers. You also transferred that analytical knowledge to your YouTube channel. How do you view analytics, and how, and what basis do you mostly use it? Yeah, so when I first started, uh, before I started with the Tigers, I had never really used or cared much about analytics. Um, but then once I started working with it, working with the coaches, the, the players, and the staff in general, I realized the value it had because we had so many uh, like old-school coaches and uh, – and, and, I, and I saw that a lot of successful teams that were like the Yankees, um, and even if you look at like the Rays or Twins, like some of these teams, the A's that are, that are really uh, putting, putting a lot towards analytics, very successful teams because they're just basing decisions on analytics and even the Astros. They're basing just decisions based on numbers and facts. And in, in baseball in general, uh, the number of scouts – they're starting to kind of dwindle away and teams are starting to like get rid of scouts and move just towards, you know, using data, using information and, and tracking and stuff like that. So when it came to football, I just think that it's not something people are going to accept right away. And I understand that there's gonna be a lot of pushback. People will be like, Oh no, that's, you know, football's not supposed to be played that way. You know, it's, a, it's all about heart and hustle and just watching film. But I think that it's good when it, it gives a, a broad perspective. And you can, it's, it's a lot easier to make an overall judgment on a player because, you know, and it's nothing to do with football scouts in general. There's nothing wrong with them. But what one scout sees on film and what another scout sees on film could be two completely different things. But the numbers usually tell, oh, have one common answer. They're, they're usually, it's usually very steady when it comes to evaluating a player. So that's why I like analytics. I feel like it, it gives a better overall assessment of a player. Now, uh, Around the same topic, uh, I critique them a lot because of the takes they view and everything else. Uh, how do you view Pro Football Focus? So I think with Pro Football Focus, I am I was originally a fan. I like them a lot. The issue that I do have is that they're just I feel like their overall mission as a company is is a bit distorted right now because originally it was there were going to be like an analytics type football company, and I'm like, okay, that's cool if that's going to be their thing, and they're just going to stick to numbers. I think that has a lot of value um, for fans and in the NFL. I think teams can use that and it can work out well. The problem is they started to get into like hot takes and they started putting out these videos 
that defense doesn't matter. Giants should draft Tua. I mean, all these like crazy things that I've talked about like a million times. Everyone's talked about a million times on Twitter. And I'm just like, why are you like, I'm just confused as to what this company is. Are they going to be this analytics facts-based company or are they going to be this hot take, you know, let's just say crazy things to cause a reaction. And even with their player grades, I've said this too, I think they should either get rid of player grades or completely uh, incorporate analytics into their player grades because it really doesn't make sense that part either when you think about they're supposed to be like this football analytics company. That's what people would probably think that they are. And then they make these player grades based on just watching film and what they think is a good throw or a bad throw or a turnover-worthy play or a big, big play throw. Like all these different terms are very subjective. They're not analytically based. And so like I, I remember when Daniel Jones had that five-touchdown performance against the Redskins this year, and they gave him like a grade of 78. And if you look at it in terms of like analytics, like expected points added, EPA, which is probably like the most valuable – analytic when it comes to football these days uh he had a great game like that that's an elite level performance i think it was somewhere around like seven like he added like seven points or epa expected points added to his overall epa from where it stood prior so i don't know i'm, I'm just like kind of iffy on them i do like some of their analytics and then some of the other things i'm just i'm not a big fan of i watched one of your videos Recently, you said that the Giants should trade for Chris Conley, the Jaguars' current receiver. Why do you think we should trade for him and not develop one of the UDFAs that we signed, like Austin Mack, uh, Derek Dillon, or Benjamin Victor? Yeah, I think you know there's there's a chance that an undrafted free agent signing could become a good player, right? He can become uh, you know maybe an impactful player on the team. Obviously, Victor Cruz is, is a great example of that. But at the same time, it's tough to expect that. You know, an undrafted rookie when if he if he makes the team is probably going to be a guy who plays on special teams first, earns his way, maybe plays here and there, catches twenty or thirty pass, maybe twenty passes in the season or whatever, gets spot time here, depending on what happens. But at the same time, you want to make sure you know that Daniel Jones is your guy moving forward. And by doing that, you want to give him as many weapons as possible. And the Giants know going into this season that Sterling Shepard's concussion situation is serious. He missed six games last year, and it was, it was a reoccurring thing. It didn't just happen once. He missed time, and he came back. So you know that. You know Evan Ingram is not someone you can trust when it comes to consistently playing. Corey Coleman, another guy that's expected to make the team and be you know, maybe your fourth receiver, your fifth receiver, he obviously missed the entire year last year. He didn't play at all. So you have three guys that are expected to be – two guys that are definitely going to be important uh, important parts to your passing attack and Ingram and Shepard that you know coming in they have injury issues so you got to be aware of that and then Coleman so I would say give your quarterback uh, enough options give him give make there be depth because the last thing you want is it's the middle of the year Shepard and Ingram aren't available you have Tate and Slayton and maybe one of them isn't available maybe Tate got hurt and now you only have Slayton and you're playing a bunch of guys that you signed off the street and your quarterback ha- is, is, has nowhere to throw. He has no options. That's the last thing you want to do in a, in a pass-happy league. I would say give him depth. They didn't spend a draft pick on a wide receiver, which I, I thought was interesting. Um, and when it comes to like a big play wide receiver, they don't have that aside from that. De- there's no depth outside of Darius Slayton. And in this offense that Jason Garrett has, this air corial offense, those perimeter players those that, that stretch the field, like I said, Darius Slayton's the only guy. So if Darius Slayton goes down, 
Golden Tate and Sterling Shepard are very similar, and that's really all you have uh, when it when it comes to your receivers. I would say add a little bit more depth. Now, before I get to uh, how I would debate that point, because and so I, I see your point there, but I would also respectfully disagree. There was not one snap last year that was played by Slayton, Shep, Ingram, Barkley, and I think Slayton. Those guys did not play. Obviously, I don't know if you could fit them on the field with personnel, but they didn't play you know, in the same game. You know, one was out, another one was out, one got suspended, you know that. But then also the same thing you can make that one of the arguments against your point or debating it wise is why would you trade for, you know, a wide receiver that's going to be your number four? And it's all, I get the depth piece part, but also, you know, I don't think that the Giants are a winning team this year. So you don't really need, you know, that fourth depth piece until you're ready to win. That's that's my take on it. You know, I agree with the depth piece. You know, you rather have a, than some guy signed off the street like Damari Scott, but that's just my take on it. No, of course, and that makes sense. I mean, it's totally understandable. They're obviously not a team that's going to go out and win a championship this year. Um, at the same time, I just think that I wouldn't in, in today's NFL with with so many different uh, mismatching of personnel. It's not as though like. I don't believe if I were to trade for him and I were to kind of piece him in, I wouldn't view him as just, oh, he's the fourth wide receiver who may play here or there and catch 30 passes and probably won't be a part, but he's just there for depth. I would consistently try and use him out on the perimeter with Slayton, and it depends what they want to do, right? It depends on how many, what, what kind of wide receiver sets they want to have, how they want to use personnel. And like I said, you know, football's a game of attrition, and you can't, like you said, I mean, the, the limited amount of time with Slayton, Tate, and Shepard altogether, you know that coming into the year. So what if that happens again and they're not on the field again and then all of a sudden you're playing guys that may not be ready, you're not going to make an impact, and then going to put your quarterback in a tough situation. I mean, even if you look at Tate and Slayton, those guys were in the bottom 10 when it came to average separation yards among wide receivers. So a lot of people could say – I know a lot of people came to me because when we talked about the offensive line and maybe why – Daniel Jones threw in a tight window as to why he held on to the football. People were saying, okay, well, that's because wide receivers are not getting separation. Well, a guy like Chris Conley showed last year that he makes big plays. He kind of takes the top off of defense, that, that, that deep that deep play wide receiver. I know a lot of people don't think of him as that, but if you just look at the numbers last year, he was 10th in yards per reception. He was top 20 when it came to yards before catch per reception, so he was, he was catching the football down the field. So I think that's just my take. I, if, if I were – general manager i would play it safe give my quarterback as many options as possible because you want to make sure you know that you have your franchise quarterback you have to do whatever you can they've done that with the offensive line they've, they've added a lot of resources there make sure you have depth at wide receiver or pass catchers in general leading in my next question which will lead into the next question giants picked andrew thomas at fourth overall uh who did you want at fourth overall and if you wanted thomas or who were other valuable options you would have accepted yeah so uh like what I talked about a lot during the draft or before the draft was that taking an offensive lineman in the first round makes a ton of sense. Like you want to continue to build the offensive line. There are good prospects out there. What I was saying was based on the average draft position of the first offensive tackle taken over the last five years, since 2015, uh, the average draft position of the first offensive tackle was the 11th overall pick. So that's kind of where offensive tackles are taken. And even in a good class, obviously this was, this was one of the better offensive tackle classes in years. You had Worfs, Becton, and Jedrick Wills taken from in that 10 to 15 range, exactly where offensive tackles usually get taken. 
So my thing was, if the Giants are going to take an offensive tackle in the first round, trade back. Because that seems like that that's where that group is being taken in that 10 to 15 range. And they tried. I mean, they waited on the clock. They waited, they waited. They didn't, obviously, they didn't, they didn't find a deal that they liked. And that's fine. At least uh, I think it's, it's smart negotiation tactic, right? Smart business move to wait, see if there are any options. And if there aren't any options, you take the player that you want. So Andrew Thomas was the player that they wanted. Personally, I would have took Isaiah Simmons. The value of a good pass defense is incredibly important these days. When you look at EPA, a pass defense EPA, among the top five teams, the record was 57 and 23 last year. And when it came to top five against the run, those teams were actually 10 games over under 500. They were 35 and 45. So having a good pass defense is incredibly important. The bottom 16 teams in that category, only four made the playoffs. So you're looking at the top half, half of them made the playoffs. And the Chiefs 49ers were top eight. So you need to be good against the pass. And the Giants were 27th last year against the pass. And James Bradbury will certainly help. Xavier McKinney will certainly help. I was a guy that I think Joe Schobert would have been a good signing. That's the kind of guy I thought they should have signed. Good pass coverage. If you added Isaiah Simmons and then James Bradbury, all of a sudden that's that's a really interesting pass defense and uh, defense in general. So I would have won Isaiah Simmons, but I don't knock them at all for adding what they feel like is their future left tackle and protecting their most important asset, Danny Jones. Next topic is a hot topic, really, among Giant fans on the analytical side. And if you're not on the analytical side, I know you did a video on this that kind of caused controversy. I'm not going to go into that. But how do you view the Nate Solder situation? And I think your words that he was an average tackle. He did have the pass block win rate that Tyron Smith did. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think Nate Solder's anything special. I don't think he's like this great left tackle. I just think that it's important. My whole thing... Um, about Nate Solder is that it's important with any player because I think like the left tackle position and the offensive line has just been a position where everyone just assumes and says, oh, this the Giants need to fix this so badly. It's just so bad. And for years, that was the case. That was the case. They needed to fix it. They needed to have players. Um, but at the same time, when it came to Nate Solder, you know, a lot of people tell me, go, you know, watch the tape, right? The eye test. And I went back and I watched the tape and I watched every single sack that he gave up and I did the numbers. I, I did the math on it. And the average sack was 3.2 seconds. So that shows you that the quarterback is holding on to the football. And while the amount of sacks he gave up is obviously not good and you would want him to give up less sacks, at the same time, you have to consider that rookie quarterback who has pocket awareness issues, he needs to fix that. And him holding on to the football, I don't blame him for trying to make plays downfield. That's fine. If he wants to hold on to the football, extend plays and try and make plays down the field, but he's going to take more sacks, that's fine, but we can't then sit there and blame the left tackle on the offensive line for being bad if the quarterback is going to hold on to the football longer than most. So when we look at the Nate Solder situation, the reason I would say start Andrew Thomas at right tackle first and Nate Solder at left tackle to start the season, why rush Andrew Thomas? Everybody knows that the Giants are not going to win a championship this year. If he goes out there and he struggles, I mean, there's going to be a lot of expectation on Andrew Thomas. That's why, that's why I really talked about this and why I think I went back and I looked, kind of gave a little more context to the Nate Solder situation. Pass block win rate is also based on two and a half seconds. So holding a block for two and a half seconds, the league average when it comes to throwing the football is usually is two and a half seconds. So if Nate Solder's giving up sacks that on average are 3.2 seconds, it goes to show you that he's at least he's holding his own. The quarterback probably needs to get rid of the ball a little bit quicker. So I think that he's a serviceable left tackle. I don't think he's great. I think he's serviceable. And I would keep Andrew Thomas at right tackle. 
ease him in whenever he's ready. If he plays well, move him over. If, it, if maybe Nate Solder struggles, you move Nate Solder to right tackle. And I do say that because because of those expectations. You have the fourth overall pick. The fourth overall pick playing, if he plays left tackle, those are big-time expectations. People are expecting him to be this Pro Bowl-level 10-year starter. That's a lot to put on a rookie. So if he comes out and he struggles right away, playing that premier position with everybody watching him, I mean, look what happened to Eric Flowers. Not saying that Andrew Thomas is the same player as Eric Flowers, but that's an example of a guy who will beat he got hurt, Eric Flowers had to step in and wasn't ready to play left tackle, and it was a disaster. I'm just saying, with the Giants being in the situation that they are, I don't see any reason to rush it. Now, i got a couple topics to really, I wouldn't say go against, but debate, because there's a lot of things that, in my opinion, I'm not saying you're doing the numbers wrong, because you know what you're doing with the analytics. You know you know them better than I do, and I will admit that. But there's a lot of th- things analytics don't take in. Uh, for instance... Game sensitivity, you know, obviously we saw that Daniel Jones had pocket awareness issues, but if you take a look at some of the sacks that Nate Solder gave up, you know, he gave up a sack to Dorrance Armstrong where Jordan Lewis took it back for a touchdown in a drive where the Giants were trying to come back and, you know, at least have a chance to score another touchdown and maybe get an onside kick. Go look at the Eagles game, you know, Scott Simonson or Caden Smith chipped Vinnie Curry and then Nate Solder fell down and Eli Manning got sacked. Now, I'm not saying that you know, Eli could have or could have not came out of that sack. But if you take a look at the game there, they didn't score for the rest of the half or they didn't even score that half. And that's why, and they also ended up losing 23 or 24, 17 in overtime because they didn't make adjustments. But I think game sensitivity is something that people have to consider outside of analytics because that's not going to go show up on the stat sheet. That's my opinion, at least when it comes to analytics. Sure. One of the I think people also need to meet. And this is something that I want to continue to talk about and continue to bring up. So that's something that I'm going to do this year too. So Pro Football Reference has basically a box score of uh, that shows EPA per play. So if we did want to go back and look at those specific plays, we could. And we could look at what it cost the Giants mathematically, expected points-wise. So maybe that's something that even after this podcast I can look into, look at those specific plays that you talked about. We can go back, we can look at the numbers, and we can look at what they're telling us. Because, look, of course, I mean, I'm not saying Nate Solder's great. He definitely had his flaws, and he's not perfect. And even when he signed, I don't think anybody was like, oh, this guy is one of the best left tackles in the NFL. I think a lot of people – I think Ben McAdoo came out right after – obviously, Ben McAdoo was fired. But he yeah. said, oh, Nate Solder's not even a good player. Yeah, so, he said that about Eric Flowers, too. But he's also the quarterback's yeah. coach of the Jaguars now, so we'll see where that goes. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, but I, I just think uh, like Nate Solder definitely made his, 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 uh, his mistakes. I just think that sometimes we overreact a little bit. We, we say things like, oh, someone's the best, someone's the worst. And it's like, okay, well, let's add a little bit of context. Nate Solder, I don't think he's the best. I don't think he's the worst. I think he's just an average player. He's serviceable enough. And uh, at the end of the day, look, the offensive line in general, they were 12th in pass block win rate. And they started out the season really well. And then Saquon Barkley got hurt. It kind of hurt their adjusted line yards when it comes to like football outsider statistics. But overall, it was it was, it was was a you, you could get away with that offensive line. The problem they had, the reason why they lost games was because their past defense was atrocious and because they had a rookie quarterback. And Daniel Jones showed signs. He, he has potential. He played well in certain aspects. At the same time, he did have a lot of turnover issues. They led the league in fumbles. They were third in overall turnovers. So if you have a, te- a defense that can't stop the pass and an offense that turns it over a lot, you're not going to win any games. So at the end of the day, it's the offensive line, they, they continue uh, to add pieces to it and you, you know, everyone will assume that it'll get better and that'll be a good unit. 
but it will all come down to the quarterback making better decisions, better pocket awareness, not turning it over, and the defense being able to stop teams when, when throwing the football. Now, something to bring up also on the topic, uh, your ideal offensive line is obviously Thomas, right tackle, Soldier, left tackle. Every first-year tackle will struggle. Colton Miller, uh, Garrett Bowles, the Broncos, Juwan Taylor, the Jags. Now, something that I also thought about, even though in my situation you could put Thomas at left tackle, even though there is immense pressure, you know, that's the stronger tackle side, would putting Solder at right tackle, I don't know who you're going to put at left tackle just to adjust Jones' situation, wouldn't putting Solder at right tackle have Daniel Jones improve his awareness because he's actually, in some cases, seeing what's coming from the right side? And the point is, a lot of people freak out and like, oh, this is, you know, it's going to be the Eric Flowers thing. At least Nate Solder, you know, at some point in his career, he was a solid tackle. Eric Flowers was not. Bad technique all around. Yeah, I mean, look, it depends on um, how these how these guys, uh, you know, what, how these guys look in camp. If, if Andrew Thomas looks like that fourth overall pick, left tackle, then you put him over there. Then Joe Judge and the coaching staff, they make the decision based on that. At the end of the day, I just think that the left tackle position in general is just such a it, – it, it's a position that people have focused on so much going back to Eli Manning's days as quarterback where if Andrew Thomas doesn't come out and play great – and the left tackle in the offensive line is, is not a glamour position. So my example was in one of the videos was that a guy like – let's say Chase Young. Chase Young, let's say he ends the season with eight sacks. But if you look at the film and everything and you watch him, he was let's say he's terrible against the run. Just making hypothetical here. People are going to look at the eight sacks and they're going to say, look at those eight good plays, and that guy has potential, and he had a really good rookie year. If Andrew Thomas comes in and, let's say, in a game he gives up three sacks, and he, but on one play he makes this great block, people are going to say, look at the three sacks. That was terrible. He's atrocious. This is a bad pick. So that's why I would say as much if you can alleviate the pressure as much as you can on the guy and put him in a situation to succeed, do it. I think – looking back and adding the context to those Nate Solder sacks. Again, not saying he's great, but can they get away with him playing left tackle if Daniel Jones has more pocket awareness, doesn't fumble as much, maybe gets rid of the ball a little bit quicker, steps up, moves around, scrambles a little bit. Um, I think they could get away with that. If they feel like Nate Solder's guy right tackle, then that's their decision. Now, going back to hypothetical Chase Young uh, possibility. Now, it could or could not happen, but... The real point is, I was debating with the Giants fan because they said, and it's kind of a proven point in some cases, that Marcus Golden was probably one of the better players on a bad team last year. He had 10 sacks. That person debated with me, says, you know, that's 10 sacks. Uh, he was either left uncovered or was a coverage sack. But also, from a positive standpoint, if the secondary gets better, how many coverage sacks is he going to get? That means he'll get more because if the secondary does his job, the pocket will crash and hopefully... They get to the quarterback. Yeah, I mean, I honestly think, uh, look, I, I, when I say this, sacks have value. So I don't want to say that it's like, oh, they don't matter. They matter, obviously. But at the same time, like, Marcus Golden had 44 quarterback pressures last year. He was top 10 in pressures. So if anyone's making the argument that, oh, it's just because he got lucky on sacks, well, that's not true. I mean, overall amount of pressures, creating pressure on the quarterback, he was one of the better edge rushers in the NFL last year. So... You know, it's one thing if, if the guy gets lucky and he has, let's say, 25 pressures but 10 sacks. I mean, if you're ranking top 10 in pressures among all defensive players, it goes to show that you're constantly creating pressure, sack or not. Because sometimes sacks can be a lucky statistic. Like you said, sometimes 
it depends on how the play works out. Maybe that player got a little bit lucky on that play for whatever reason, whatever situation might happen. But if you're constantly creating pressure, that's really not about luck. That's being about a good, that's you being a good player and be a, being able to constantly create pressure. So that's how I would kind of value a situation like that. Now you said uh, four available free agents in one of your vi videos that the Giants should possibly suggest signing or at least think about. Cameron Wake, Darren Lee, Paul Richard, and Sa Tavon Wilson. Now, the Giants have been, last two years under the Gettleman regime, really, they've been signing these stopgap veterans, and we've seen mixed results like Antoine Bethea and all these guys. Cameron Wake is, I think, 38. Paul Richardson does have an injury history. Tavon Wilson, I believe, is 30. But also, Darren Lee has a PED or drug history, and he's also 25. But let's just disregard maybe the history and everything else in the age. Wouldn't it make sense for the Giants to go after one of these guys if they were in a win-now situation? Um, uh, not necessarily. I think that at the end of the day, you still need to add some, some veteran depth. Um, and that's something that they obviously have done in the past and obviously very mixed results. But at the same time, you look at a player like Marcus Golden, right? I mean, Marcus Golden was signed and there wasn't much of an expectation, kind of a lot of injuries in his, in his career, you know production here and then kind of disappearing i mean he only signed he signed for less than five million dollars last year so there wasn't that much that was expected of him and the results were big time i mean like you, like i talked about top 10 in pressures had double digit sacks so he played incredibly well so when it comes to those players you do need some some depth i'm not saying those guys are going to you know be your starters and they're going to you know, expect them to play all 16 games and 80 percent of snaps in your defense and your offense but uh you know, guys that have done it before, depth options, veteran guys, and they're not going to cost that much. These aren't like Jadavian Clowney level players where you have to pay him $16, $17 million. A guy like Cameron Wake, if you just look at the advanced metrics, incredibly underrated, really good at creating pressure. He's had his injury issues. He's definitely older. But you also would add him to kind of a younger group of edge rushers with Lorenzo Carter and O'Shane Ximenez and now all these linebackers that they've drafted. So adding that veteran presence and his ability to steer rush the passer. Paul Richardson, that big play threat that I was talking about, they don't have, aside from Darius Slayton, they don't have that, which is why I think Chris Conley would also be a good addition if they could make a trade. But Richardson provides that with, with Tavon Wilson. He has experience with Joe Judge. Also, they don't really have that much experience in the secondary. So it's very young secondary. Nate Ebner, I'm not going to count as safety, considering he's basically a special teams guy. Aside from Nate Ebner, you got a bunch of guys who and James Bradbury is the oldest guy, 26 years old. So, adding a veteran like Wilson may help. And uh, Darren Lee, just a, a good pass coverage linebacker. Two years ago, he played really well. I think had like three interceptions, pass rating around 70. And right now, you have David Mayo, who has analytically performed well against the pass, but a lot of people are not sold on him as a not sold in coverage with him. Ryan Connolly, you still don't really know. Showed promise, but you don't know. Blake Martinez, the numbers don't tell you that he was very good in coverage. So I was just kind of picking credence that I think would add value in certain spots of need. Compared to the other moves, uh, I'm even, Steven, on this move compared to when the Giants made it. Why is Janoris Jenkins, in your opinion, the most questionable move of the Gettleman regime and not letting Landon Collins go or trading Odell Beckham? So I would, with with those moves, the Giants got something out of it, right? So you trade Odell Beckham, you get a first round pick, you get a third round pick, you get Jabril Pepper, so you got something out of it. Now, 
fair trade compensation is completely dependent on what the per what anyone believes is fair. I mean, I think that they got fair compensation when you compare it to other wide receivers. You look at DeAndre Hopkins, Stephon Diggs. All of a sudden, the Odell Beckham deal looks really good. But there's still going to be people who be like, oh, I didn't like that. Well, it's dependent on what you think is good. And with Landon Collins, they let him walk, but they also got a third round compensation pick out of it. So you still get something out of it. I think in that offseason, they expected not to make any moves, that it was going to be going into the 2019 year complete rebuild. So they really didn't go out and make any splashy moves. So they were able to get that third round compensation pick from Landon Collins. But what you know, saying is they got nothing. And if you just look at the numbers, you're talking about a cornerback position where since 2016, three cornerbacks have been taken in the top five. So teams value that position in a big way. Like I talked about when it came to um, EPA against against the pass, like the passing defense. You need to be good against the pass to be a good football team most of the time. You have to, like the top half of the league in that category, half of them made the playoffs. You got to be good in that category. So when you give up a player like Janoris Jenkins, who was incredibly productive, his passer rating was 67. He had five interceptions. Um, he had, I believe, 16 passes defended, which was top 10 in the league. He had the same yards per completion as Stephon Gilmore. He was really good last year. And to waive him and to get nothing in return, for me, that's the most questionable move. You, I mean, people can argue Barkley, Jones, Nate Solder, Leonard Williams, but those were attempts at making the team better, right? You go out and you sign who you think is a left – good left tackle or you draft a player you think is going to start and be good running back good quarterback you trade for a defensive lineman who's you're expecting to start be a good player you wave Janoris Jenkins and you get what there's nothing that was that was received out of it you just got rid of a good player at a really important position for nothing and the thing is there's only three games left in the year and at that point the trade deadline had passed so there was no option to make a trade why not wait it out, go into the offseason, see what you can do. And if nobody wants him, nobody wants to trade him, and you want to get rid of him, save cap space and sign James Bradbury, then do it. But negotiation-wise, they had no other options other than to get just waive it. So that's why I believe it was it was questionable. There's there's no return for getting rid of him. Now, when you said that, you know, getting drafting Jones, drafting Barkley, signing Solder, and trading for Leonard Williams, you know, you said that they're trying to improve the team that way. From a critical opposing standpoint, wouldn't you say that counts what happens on the field more than, you know, what you're expecting of that player and what the transaction was before they got in the field? Of course. I mean, look, it depends on how the player plays. If Nate Solder was great, then Dave Gettleman looked like a genius. If Nate Solder's playing the way he is or just, you know, not to the level of his contract, obviously, then people are going to say, all right, the Nate Solder deal wasn't what people expected. You know, it's all you know, it's something you have to look in the moment sounds great or maybe it doesn't sound great um but the players have to go out and they have to play and they have to they have to prove that that move uh they have to prove the validity of that move at the end of the day though i'm strictly just talking about in the moment like those draft picks dave gettleman thought would make the team better he thought that saquon barkley would help eli manning he thought daniel jones would be the quarterback of the future he thought nate solder would be that left tackle that his quarterback needed he thought that leonard williams would be that really good starting player on their defense the intention of those moves was to have players who were going to add value to his team. At the end of the day, the Janoris Jenkins move, you got nothing out of it. I mean, even people that want to debate the Leonard Williams deal, well, they got a player out of it. It's not like they took that third round pick and they put it on waivers and said, all right, whoever wants the pick, go have it. You know, we're just giving it away. They got a player out of it that they thought was good. Now, look, it's tough to judge these moves. It's, to judge these moves, it's going to take a couple of years. 
may take five years to totally judge a draft class, three or four years. So whatever happens, you know, whatever those players turn into is what happens. But the overall intention of those moves compared to the Janoris Jenkins move is why I think it should cause a little more questioning than it has. Now, would you see James Bradbury's experience against NFC South wide receivers an upgrade over Janoris Jenkins? Would that give the defense a less of a thing to be worrying about? Especially the receivers that we're facing this year, like OBJ, Landry, Juju. Sure. I mean, James Bradbury performed really well last year. Um, strong passer rating. The advanced metrics were in favor of him. Uh, I thought it was good signing. Uh, seems to be kind of like a gritty corner. Uh, young. So, uh, and overall, the contract, I don't think, was, was really that crippling at all. A three-year deal, $45 million. I think they got a lot of good value in that. So, you know, like I talked about the importance of a pass defense, whatever they had to pay for James Bradbury, go out and pay it. I mean, he's proven to be a good player. That's what the numbers would tell you. Um, obviously, he had a connection with Dave Gettleman. Gettleman drafted him in the second round in Carolina. So that move, I mean, made complete sense. I thought they got a lot of value. That was someone that I, I talked about before free agency. I said, I, I, you know, it comes down to Byron Jones and James Bradbury. Uh, I think that they need to walk away with at least one of them because what are you going to do? You're going to go into next year and you're going to have – DeAndre Baker, who played well at the end of the year, so there was promise. But at the same time, he's not a lockdown corner by any means just yet. And then who else is going to be opposite him? So to get that like bonafide starting corner, James Bradbury, I think, was, uh, was seems to be the right move so far. Last two years, we had a James Betcher defense, and this year we have a Patrick Graham defense. Uh, more 3-4 on the side of Betcher, but... You know, a little bit of 3-4 in Graham's past, but we'll see what he runs this year. Do you see this as a possible upgrade because we have playmakers now compared to the flunkies that Betcher brought over from Arizona? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, when it came to the Pat Shermer, James Betcher coaching staff, they didn't have a shot. I mean, I, like, I understand people want to be critical of Betcher and Shermer, and, like, it's fair. You know, they didn't win games, so you, it's it's very fair to just say, hey, they weren't good coaches or whatever. But at the end of the day, you need good players in order to have a good defense or have an offense. I mean, you can't just expect a coach to mate, to wave a magic wand and all of a sudden defense can be great. Firing James Betcher, I understand why they did it. You bring in a new coaching staff, so obviously you want your head coach to bring in whoever he feels comfortable with. So, uh, you know, it's not outrageous to fire James Betcher. But at the same time, like, what was James Betcher given that was going to he wasn't going to have a good defense. There was no chance when you startled with rookies. And I even, I, I put out a number where top 10 teams that started the most rookies last year, their record was just atrocious. At the end of the day, when you start a, you know, a bunch of young rookies, young, young players, you're not going to win right away. Like that's just what, that's what the numbers are going to tell you. And last year you're, you're starting, you're starting the after Baker. Then at the end of the year, you're bringing Stan Beal, Corey Valentine, you have Dexter Lawrence, your, your linebacker situation you have Lorenzo Carter, still not proven, O'Shaney Ziminis, David Mayo, Ryan Connolly, Alec Ogletree, which obviously he's, he's not a very good player. Joel Peppers got hurt, still a young player. Antoine Mathieu was atrocious, and statistically, I think he was the third worst player in coverage in the NFL last year in passer rating. Not much talent or game-changing talent. I mean, Leonard Williamson wasn't acquired until the second half of the season, so James Betcher had no chance to succeed. So I'm not going to say it was all on him. You need good players. And Patrick Graham is now stepping into a situation where he's got some good players. They've signed Blake Martinez. They signed James Bradbury. He's Aiden McKinney. So they've added some some interesting pieces. Maybe they get Marcus Golden back. Kyler Fackles, an underrated uh, edge rusher. I think it's even funny looking back, like 
2015, Tom Coughlin gets fired. And then they go out and they spend all this money on Janoris Jenkins, Damon Harrison, uh, Olivia Vernon. And then they win 11 games. I mean, it's no coincidence. They went out, they signed a bunch of good players, and they win football games. Even with Ben McAdoo, who obviously a lot of people don't think is a very good coach. But is Ben McAdoo a better coach than Tom Coughlin? Because Tom Coughlin only won six games in 2015, and Ben McAdoo won 11 next year. A lot of it is dependent on how many good players you had. So I think that's going to be... Uh, that's going to be the thing when it comes to this team and this coaching staff in general. Pat Shermer not given much of a chance to succeed, and now Joe Judge is starting to get some pieces here, and he might he might succeed because he's given better players. Three disappointing seasons. Two beats one in this case. Would you bring in competition for Aldrick Rosas? Yeah, of course. I think kicker in general, you just you kind of you bring in competition to see what can happen. Um, he didn't obviously he didn't perform as well as he did the year prior, but yeah, you bring in competition, you see what you got, and uh, you know whoever. I mean, maybe they still want to. I, I when I look at kicker, I feel like it's very much like reliever in baseball. Relievers tend to be very like year to year, and obviously the Mets saw that with Edwin Diaz this past year, where he was great, and then he all of a sudden had his struggles uh, in New York. So. When it comes to kickers, I feel like they're very much like that. They can be very year-to-year. So, you, yeah, you bring in competition, you see uh, who's the better kicker in camp. Last year, after the Williams trade, uh, B.J. Hill saw less playing time. How do you feel in that situation? Do you believe that was Betcher's lack of creativity? Could he not get B.J. Hill in? Do you believe that the, he was favoring Williams, or B.J. Hill just regressed? Um... Looking at the numbers, I don't believe he really regressed. I don't think he was like, oh, my gosh, he looks terrible now or he's awful. I just think that they're trying to create a rotation of defensive linemen. And even if you look at Leonard Williams, his snap total, it wasn't like he was playing 90% of the time. So in general, this is something that if you go back to the earlier days, I mean, obviously Gettleman was, was in the New York Giants organization for years and years and years when they won those two Super Bowls uh, back in – 2007 season and 2011 season Gettleman was a part of that so those teams obviously had that similar defensive line rotation Strahan, Tuck, OC and then you had JPP, uh, Tuck, OC so and even other players and even at defensive tackle they had a rotation okay Chris Canny and then Volchosa and uh, Rocky Bernard and players like that where they, they like to do that they like to just have a bunch of uh, depth options there so I think it's more about that. I think it's just more about being good in the trenches, adding depth on the defensive line. I don't think it's so much about, like, B.J. Hill took this huge step back and he's irrelevant. Because at the end of the day, he was only in his second year. So to, like, be a productive rookie in 2018 and then all of a sudden for the organization to say, oh, we're not as impressed. So, all right, you're casted off. You're not important. I, I don't think that's the case. I just think they're trying to create depth and a good rotation on the defensive line. Now, we saw a little steps backwards with the draft class from 2018. Obviously, Hernandez didn't perform well. Saquon got injured. Lorenzo Carter didn't do as good. or Well, he got a half a sack more, but in more playing time, he didn't do what he did situationally. But also, one player that just came to mind for me is someone who's an undrafted free agent. Would you say the same happened to Grant Haley, maybe? I know a lot of Giants fans do not have a lot of confidence in him going forward. Yeah, I mean, he's... Arguably one of the worst uh, coverage corner cover corners in the league. If just again, just looking at the overall numbers, my thing for Grant Haley was I thought that uh, when it came to being a good, he's a great tackler, right? He he's a he's a physical corner. 
he likes to get in there. He likes to make tackles. The numbers will tell you that. You watch the games, it'll tell you that. Physical corner. I think uh, maybe a switch to kind of like a box safety or maybe even like a middle linebacker I think would be kind of interesting. I know he's a bit undersized, so that idea is uh, may not be something that they, they choose to to, uh, to look at. But Grant Haley, look, he's, he's an undrafted player, so that's the thing. Like, can't expect too much out of him. Um, overall, that draft class, the 2018 draft class, Saquon Barkley had his injury situation, so I think for a certain amount of time, I think it might have been like a seven-game stretch. He really struggled in the final three games. He really played well. Abdul Hernandez, nothing like jumped off the table in terms of being great in his second year. But here's the thing, right? Like, I think a lot of people want like immediate results for the draft class. It takes time. And I think a great example, Justin Tuck, Corey Webster, those guys, first couple of years were like irrelevant. I mean, not even – nobody really – thought too much of those players and they turned out to be really productive players for the Giants for years and at the same time the Giants were rebuilding last year so even if Lorenzo Carter and Will Hernandez and Saquon Barkley didn't play up to the level that that people wanted to they've already showed they've showed that they have potential at least they've showed in their rookie season that okay it's there and you can go into 2020 saying okay well it's their third year more development you would hope that they can step up be starters and be legitimate starters and you know I don't think everyone is going to turn out to be a Pro Bowl level player. Maybe Saquon Barkley is, is kind of that guy, and that's what you expect out of the second overall pick. But if Will Hernandez can just be a good starting left guard and Lorenzo Carter can be an above average edge rusher, it's a win. Now, going back to the linebacker core, we obviously talked about maybe a Grant Haley switch, but right now, in the terms of going into the run game, covering tight ends, and just premier tackling, how confident are you in this linebacker core? Um. Yeah, that's why I was a big fan of, of Joe Schobert, of Isaiah Simmons, because now you kind of have that linebacking group that not only can play well in coverage, but those are also guys that, uh, specific, you know, specifically with Isaiah Simmons, can rush the passer efficiently. He had the highest pressure rate of any player in college football last year with at least 70 pass rushing snaps, so he was a good pass rusher as well. Um, but this group... It remains to be seen, and that's kind of the big question mark, is that you have, you know, this is a pass-happy league, and you have a guy like Blake Martinez statistically did not perform well against the pass in his career, over the course of his career. Uh, David Mayo, like I said, the numbers are not bad with him, but a lot of people don't consider him very good in pass coverage. We'll see with Ryan Connolly. We don't know. The sample size is not large enough. O'Shaney Simmons, Lorenzo Carter. Maybe Lorenzo Carter can can do that. Maybe they, they feel like he's more of an inside linebacker who can – and that off-ball linebacker who's who's better in coverage. Um, but overall, is it like, oh, my gosh, this group has a lot of potential? Probably somewhere like average, an average group of linebackers when it comes to playing in coverage, maybe even a little bit below average. But we'll see. A lot of young players, so we don't really know. How those players develop will determine that group. And when you draft Xavier McKinney, now you kind of expect him to be a guy who can cover tight ends or you know, kind of move around and do whatever they want with him. That's the kind of player that he is for you move him around, see what he can do. So maybe that's what they, they feel as though, okay, just add good pass rushers and good guys against the run when it comes to linebackers. And then we'll have an Xavier McKinney and Julian Love kind of handle the rest, handle tight ends and stuff like that. Now, Giants are very fortunate enough that hopefully they do have a season, even though that we're not expected to win a lot of games because our talent is still growing. Who, in your opinion, is the most exciting opponent against the Giants this season? Most exciting. 
I don't know. I mean, I do. I really want to see the Browns game. I really want to see kind of the Odell Beckham game. Uh, I think that's going to be interesting. And I even think week one, I think against the Steelers, that's that's a great test, right? Because it's like this is your first impression, right? People talk about first impressions, how important they are. That's the first impression of like this new regime. Yeah, these players. And this is Dave Gettleman's last opportunity, right? If, if they don't make the strides that people expect them to make and players don't develop the way that they're supposed to, that's it for Dave Gettleman. He's gone. And I've been someone who was very patient with that. I, I, I thought, like, you got to give Dave Gettleman a third year. He's rebuilding. Like, it doesn't really make any sense to, in the middle of a rebuild, fire the general manager, bring in a new guy who wants different players, different concepts. So I, I think that week one game against the Steelers, it's that, it's that first impression of Joe Judge, the new regime, the new players, the young players. If Andrew Thomas is the left tackle day one, how he performs. Because like I said, those expectations and narratives, narratives are big time in football. I think that's why I do like analytics because – Day one, game one, Andrew Thomas plays great, and that narrative is going to be, wow, this is an impressive, incredible pick by Dave Gettleman. If he struggles day one, people are going to say, oh, wow, was this a miss? Uh, and that narrative will start, and it'll start right away, one week into the season. So I would say week one is definitely the most interesting matchup. My personal opinion when it comes to Dave Gettleman being fired after this year, if the Giants don't do well or surpass four wins, is really that – you bring a new GM in, he might want his players only. He might want to get rid of some Gettleman players like Gettleman got rid of Reese's. And you really want to start that rebuild over again? Now, I think that a GM would be wiser than to do that, but he might just do it for the sake of his expertise. Of course, and that's exactly you know that's exactly what I was talking about. Is everyone wanted, like, so many people wanted Dave Gettleman fired uh, heading into this offseason because they didn't trust him using cap space or using the fourth overall pick and all these different things. And I'm just like, Here's the thing, right? They're in the middle of a rebuild. So if you bring in a new general manager, that guy's going to want to bring in his own pieces. Maybe he might, that new general manager might come in and say, you know what, Daniel Jones, I don't, I wouldn't have drafted him. You know what, let's get rid of him. So then you've essentially wasted the, first, the sixth overall pick in last year's draft. And maybe they see Dexter Lawrence, DeAndre Baker, eh, not a huge fan of those guys, don't really care for them, trades them all for a fourth round pick or whatever. You know what I mean? So like just situations like that, Completely starting over with a new, a new general manager in the middle of a rebuild doesn't make much sense. But this is a year that they do need to. They need to take some type of leap. You got to win at least like seven or eight games. You got to see some young players develop. Jones has to continue to, you know, continue to move up, continue to get better and play well. Um, so that first impression, I do think, is, is going to be pretty big time. Vince, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so that was the interview from earlier. Uh, a couple of things to analyze. He likes to use the numbers. He likes to use the analytics. But one thing, I'm not going to point him out because he understood my point and it was a point brought to him. One thing to analyze with these analytics is that they don't factor in game sensitivity. And I brought up the point earlier of how Dorrance Armstrong strip sacked Daniel Jones and Jordan Lewis took it back for the touchdown. That was obviously on Nate Solder's side and... Obviously, the Giants lost that game, but they had a chance to come back to that game. Now, were they going to win? Of course not, but, you know, they had a chance for the onside kick. You look at the Eagles game, they didn't score in the second half. Nate Solder gave up two straight sacks. Actually, one of them because one play was when Caden Smith or Scott Simonson chipped Vinnie Curry, and then he began to rush, and Nate Solder fell down and had Eli sacked. The next play, he failed to block whoever, I think it was Vinnie Curry again, or it might have been somebody else, 
where he was trying to do a flea flicker with Saquon, couldn't do that, and Saquon got a one or two yard loss. So that's some points to bring up there. Game sensitivity factors in the analytics. That's why I hugely endorse watching film while doing analytics because you need to watch the film in order to do the analytics because analytics does not factor in game sensitivity. And people also need to realize that Nate Solder's being paid on a four-year, $62 million contract, and he's playing, like, below average. Now, I get it. His son was doing chemotherapy. He has some type of tumor. I get that. You know, it's personal. But I would suggest him coming off the field for that. If it bothered him to an extent, I know that's a source of income, meaning the Giants. But, you know, if he's comfortable with playing on the field, he needs to play on the field. But he also needs to play at a high level on the field. Because those are his expectations. Now, was Nate Solder ever a Pro Bowl tackle in his career? Of course he wasn't. He had a PFF grade around 70 his whole career. Now, I don't rely on PFF the whole time because I believe some of their views and their takes are really bullcrap. But the point is, when you're being paid like a star tackle like Tyron Smith, but I don't know his contract, but going back to Nate Solder, when you're paying you know, so much for this guy to be a replacement left tackle... And you're getting that result, you really... There's something wrong there. And I think Giants fans need to stop defending that. I say put him at right tackle. Awareness becomes better for Daniel Jones. You can make the Eric Flowers debate. But Solder was a solid tackle for some point in his career. And Thomas will get the reps at left tackle. Now I know rookie tackles do struggle. But where are the Giants going this year? So that's the end of the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Podcast available on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, and right here on YouTube. Uh, released a video a couple of days ago. You should check that out and follow our social media pages at Bleeding Big Blue Podcast. It's Alex Savage Porter signing off. Rowan Sargani coming on Monday. Dan Duggan on Friday. You don't want to miss it. Thanks, guys. Have a good day.